The rest of us can take our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1. This is in the New Testament. If uh, a Bible is not something familiar to you, I'd encourage you to uh, take one of the Pew Bibles, and uh, there you'll find in the front of that a table of contents, and in the New Testament uh, you'll find Philippians is one of the letters of Paul. Philippians chapter 1. Before we jump into this text this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord, what we just sang together is the prayer of our heart, that our eyes as a church family would be turned to Christ. Thank you for speaking to us, for giving us your word. Your word is what brings us life as a church family. And so, gracious Father, we look to you to give to us and provide for us what we need for our faith, for our obedience, and for our, for our joy in you. Lord, we confess that we have nothing to offer you of our own. Everything we have has been a gift that we've received from you, and so we pray that you would continue to be generous towards us in this time. Nourish us, nourish our inner person with faith. You would strengthen us to be a people who display your glory, that more and more would taste and see of your goodness. So help us in this time, that we would let your word do its work in us. Thank you for being our good Father, who will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you are with us even now in this time. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Philippians chapter 1, I think what we'll do to start with is I will read uh, beginning in verse 1 down through verse 14 to give us a little bit of a taste of what Paul is writing here to these Christians in Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We'll stop there. As I think back on my childhood, I remember an occasion uh, that it stood out to me, you know those core memories you have as a child that you look back I remember uh, one time my dad asking me to go out and start the car. Let me give you a little context on why he would do that. Um, I was born and raised in Wisconsin. 
And my dad wisely knew that a young boy would be eager to start a car. It didn't matter if it was negative five out in a Wisconsin winter. He knew that I would be eager to go have the kind of the experienced and feel grown up and mature as a little guy to go and start the car. He knew I would sit in a cold car in a cold Wisconsin winter uh, for the sake of the family. So one of those days he uh, told me, go, go ahead, Sean, go start the car. So I went out and the uh, car wasn't there. I thought, wow, that's odd. I wonder if dad parked it in the front of the house. That's not where he normally would park it, but I went out to the front. The car was not there. I went back inside and said, dad, where's the car? He's like, what do you mean? So I told him that I couldn't find it and we went outside and discovered that the car had been stolen. I remember the confusion on my dad's face. I remember the confusion that I felt trying to figure out something's, something's wrong, something's changed, this is unexpected. And uh, eventually, of course, we discovered that the car had been stolen, which oddly enough, uh, the car did get recovered, but it didn't look the same. And um, then I had to start the car with a screwdriver from that point on. <laughs> I remember that feeling of alarm and confusion and like what's happening kind of strike my heart in those moments. Maybe you haven't experienced a stolen vehicle, but you've probably experienced those moments in life. In fact, we are all in that kind of situation together this morning as a church family. Today is different than we were expecting. We aren't doing a combined service this morning, and we are not having a combined fellowship, and we are no longer considering a potential church merger. We all probably have various feelings about that in this room this morning. Those feelings could include confusion or doubt, disappointment or relief or discouragement. But we aren't alone or unique as Christians to be in this situation. Faithful Christians through the ages have faced similar times of doubt and discouragement and confusion. And church history... Christians through church history have faced scenarios when things didn't seem to make sense. How should God's people respond in times like this? Well, we see an example, a roadmap in the life of Paul through what he wrote in Philippians chapter 1 and what he wrote to the Christians in Philippi. The Apostle Paul had, was facing confusing circumstances. In fact, I think it could be said that the Christian church in that day was facing confusing circumstances. Paul didn't always have an explanation for what was happening in his life, and neither do we. You don't have an explanation for that personally. We don't have an explanation for everything that happens in our lives as a church family corporately together. Yet through what Paul writes here in this letter to the Christians in Philippi, God is giving us some insight into how Christians can rightly respond when we don't understand what is going on. And we'll see how Paul's response to the confusing times, to even discouraging events, is theological. It is not pragmatic. It is not some sort of psychological pop analysis, but it is distinctly theological. And this is what I hope to encourage us with this morning as a church family is to let God's word bring life to us as we walk through this time together as a church family. Paul's response to the conundrums of life was based on the character of God and the promises of God as revealed in the scriptures. And I know I've said this before, but friends, I just want to remind us of this. God has spoken. When you open God's word, these are the words of God. And I want to encourage us as a church family to, as we sort through all the, the confusion and conundrums of life, not just now, but in the future, if the Lord tarries for another 50 years, as we go through moments of that together or alone, 
Remember, God has spoken. We have his word here in the scriptures. And this is good news because what Paul used then to navigate through the troubling times in his life is the same truth that's going to help us in the troubling times in our life. And that's because God's truth is timeless. So to help us appreciate Paul's perspective in Philippians 1, I'm going to do a review of what what has happened leading up to him writing this letter. So I'm going to be needing to do some storytelling from the book of Acts. And we're going to be reviewing through a handful of chapters in the book of Acts because it all leads up to where he is at this moment when he's writing. Um, So just I hope this will, will, um, will help us understand it. So hang with me here as we kind of walk through some of the story. During Paul's second missionary journey, he was led by the Spirit of God to go to an area called Macedonia. We would know that as modern-day Greece. The city Philippi is located in that province. And Luke records this account, and you can read it for yourself in Acts 16. I'm starting in Acts 16, and we're going to go to kind of Acts 16 all the way up, kind of in Acts 23, okay? But don't worry, it's not going to take that long. Uh, Paul arrives there, and on the Sabbath, the Jewish um, uh, Saturday, uh, Paul, or Jewish Sabbath, Paul went out looking for people to talk to about Jesus. And he finds himself at a riverside, and there he meets a woman named Lydia. And in Acts 16:14, we find out that she was actually from a city called Thyatira. So maybe she was there in business. She was a seller of purple. It could have been a, a business trip that she was on. And she was, uh, she was worshiping God. He, um, Paul starts speaking to her, and it says in Acts 16 that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was an inquirer. She was looking for truth. She meets Paul. Paul gives her the gospel, and she accepts Christ. We know this because after, the, after that conversation, it says that she was baptized. So she publicly confessed the faith in Christ that she, um, that she had. She did that publicly through baptism. You're like, man, this is awesome. I wish we could just go down to a river, talk to somebody, and they get saved and baptized and added to the church. Well, it wasn't all easy-peasy for Paul. Not everybody who heard the gospel responded that way. There was others who he, who he told the gospel to. One of them was a slave girl in town who was under demonic oppression. And, it, and the gospel was given to her. She confessed faith in Christ and she was delivered from that demonic oppression. And you're like, well, that sounds like it's wonderful. Well, it was, but there's a catch. It seems that she was some sort of fortune teller and she, was, she happened to be the chief source of income for her owners. And now they had lost their chief source of revenue because of her conversion. They are furious. Those business owners took Paul and his ministry partner, Silas, to court, angry about the financial damages that they now experienced. Things did not go well for Paul and Silas during that arraignment. They were arrested. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. And now this is the story that many of us are familiar with. They're in prison. They're praying and they're singing. And God sends an earthquake. It shakes the prison doors. The prison doors open. Before the jailer takes his life, they say, wait, we want to tell you about the hope in Christ. The jailer comes to faith in Christ. His household comes to faith in Christ. And what you have happening here is the nucleus of a church being formed in Philippi. This is the story of the beginnings of the Christian church in Philippi. It was born out of hardship and conflict and persecution through the power of the gospel changing lives. Paul and Silas were released, and Paul continued to travel and advance the gospel. I know we're reviewing a fair amount of what's going on here, but Paul continues to spread the gospel, continues to preach, and eventually Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem. While there, some false accusations are made against him, which ultimately caused a religious riot. The riot got so out of hand that Roman soldiers had to rescue Paul from the mob that had formed. 
He wasn't really rescued, though. He was more like arrested for causing civil unrest because they were going to beat him. And before they were just, they, had, they were tying out to beat him. And he says, are you going to do this to a Roman citizen? They were shocked. They didn't realize they had a Roman citizen. They stopped the beating, or they don't beat him. And uh, the next day, Paul was being questioned at a tribunal. Another riot breaks out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. It says in Acts 23 that a great clamor arose. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, um, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. So imagine being Paul living through all these events. Here's a man who's serving God faithfully. All of this difficult controversy and attacks keep interfering with that good work. Would you start to lose hope if you were Paul in this moment? I mean, every time you try to spread the good news and obey God, you get punished for it, it seems. Would you question why God is allowing all these conflicts? I mean, can't God just give you a break? In the middle of all this unrest and uncertainty, we're told that God stood by him one night and gave him a message. Acts 23.11, it says, The following night, the Lord, he's in prison still, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you may testify also in Rome. And you're like, nice. I wish that happened to me sometimes. In the middle of confusion, suddenly, boom, there's God standing next to me, giving me a direct word for my problem. Well, think about it. If God had told Paul two weeks prior, I want you to testify of me in Rome, how do we imagine Paul would respond? Well, I think it'd be reasonable to say that he'd travel to Rome, find people, pray, tell them about Jesus. But God had drastically different plans. God was going to give Paul a witness to some of the most powerful political figures in Rome in that day, and he was going to give the gospel witness to some of the most exclusive private security in Rome, the Imperial Guard. How did God accomplish this? Well, God accomplished it through false accusations, arrests, riots, imprisonment, death threats, shipwreck, court proceedings, and years spent in jail. And you see that play out in Acts. All right? I mean, here we go. We love reading stories about this, right? None of us want to live this. <laughs> The hatred toward Paul was so intense, some of his adversaries took a vow they would not eat or drink until they killed him. That's serious. The plot was discovered. Roman soldiers, a cohort, was sent to escort him. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. You can read about this in Acts. Paul eventually stands trial before Felix, who was the Roman governor of the day. He was unjustly accused, maligned, then thrown back in prison and forgotten about because Felix was hoping that he would be able to get a bribe to release Paul. Administrations change. Felix left office. Festus comes into power. Paul had a hearing with Festus. Eventually, he asked finally to make an appeal to Caesar. And by the way, each time Paul had these audiences with these political figures, the gospel was proclaimed. Paul now appeals to Caesar, and this results in a treacherous voyage to Rome by ship, which resulted in a violent storm that shipwrecked him and left them marooned on an island in winter for three months before they finally made their way to the mainland and got to Rome for proceedings to continue. And then he languished in prison for another two years. Aren't you glad you're not the Apostle Paul? Now think about it. It could be argued that the most influential Christian in the first century is locked up, hindered from traveling, and from spreading the news of the gospel. While at the apex of his ministry effectiveness, it seems that the Christian community is now wrestling with the reality that he is wasting away in prison. That this massive talent and gift of God to Christ, to Christ Church is just set aside on a shelf. 
How are we to respond when when it seems like life does not make sense, when we are frustrated or starting to lose heart with the events that happen near or around us. And by the way, the Christian church had a pretty spectacular precedent for when important Christian figures got put in prison. I mean, Peter was put in prison. They prayed. God released Peter. I mean, sent an angel and delivered him out miraculously. It was so miraculous, the people praying for him, when he stood at the door and knocked and said, let me in, the people were so astounded by this, they didn't even let him in. So I would imagine that the Christian church kind of would think, well, hey, this happened to Peter once upon a time. Let's pray for Paul. God will release Paul. And then God did not. By the way, um, there was not the quick news cycle, satellite feed, satellite telephones, cell phones, emails, all this news feed stuff going on. So he's traveling to Rome, shipwrecked. He's marooned on an island for three months. Just imagine the Christian community. Is he dead? Is he gone? How are we to respond when times in life don't make sense? This church family is in one of those times. We had a pastoral candidate and a possible merger with another church, and now that is over. So we are asking, what is going on? What is God doing in all of this? How should we respond? Well, the only place that we will find stability for times like this is through the the unexplainable ups and downs is in God's word, and we can learn from God's word about faith for times like this. So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, I believe are simply showing us this simple idea. When you don't know what's happening, trust God who does. And folks, that is not like extraordinarily novel. You could find that reality in so many of the Psalms, other passages of Scripture. But for our sake today, really want to draw this truth out from Philippians 1, 12 through 14. When you don't know what's happening, trust God who does. Why? I'm going to try to give us some practical reasons from God's word why. To help us now in this moment and to help us in whatever future ups and downs that are are inevitable in a world that is cursed by sin. Why? Because sometimes life includes divine detours. I want to remind us of this reality. Sometimes life includes divine detours. Sometimes even our very best efforts for wisdom and prudence, all while seeking godly counsel and prayer and God's word, don't produce the results we hoped for. The simple fact is none of us are God. Sometimes we misjudge things. Other times we might find ourselves in confusing times, unable to figure out what God is doing. And it is a fact of life that sometimes God takes us on an unplanned detour where we cannot sort out the details or understand his plan or the reasons why. And by the way, God does not owe us reasons. I know that kicks against our modern mind of rationale and reason, but God does not owe us reasons. God never gave Job reasons. What God gave in an answer to Job was, here is who I am, Job. That's what, his, that's what God's answers was to Job. So I'm just trying to remind us that God is God. And sometimes... He brings into our lives divine detours. What are we supposed to do? Well, we trust God. Now, we see this play out in the life of Joseph. I'm trying to pick some obvious examples that we are familiar with just to help us kind of almost be able to preach this truth to our own hearts uh, in, in times to come. We see this play out in the life of Joseph in the Old Testament book of Genesis. If you've never read that story, I would encourage you to find a Bible. If you need a Bible, take the Bible that's there in the pew in front of you and read this story. But Joseph went from being the favored son, blessed, 
son to being chained and sold as a slave into Egypt. Eventually, he experiences success. Everybody's like, yay, that's kind of the American story, right? But it was still, we need to remember, it was still while being kidnapped, right? And and in a foreign land. Um, It wasn't like Joseph was going to a job fair and he just kind of got a great great opportunity. Um, Then he was falsely accused, maligned, and thrown into prison where he languished for years. Eventually, while in prison, he has a stroke of good fortune with some cellmates. Uh, One of them is executed, one of them is not, and the one that wasn't, the uh, cupbearer, he says, please remember me, please put a good word in for me. Well, he was promptly forgotten about, and he languished in prison longer. Eventually, God sends a dream to Pharaoh. The cupbearer has a vague memory of a guy who interpreted a dream, says, yeah, get this guy to prison. He bring him out of prison, he interprets the dream under the power of God, and eventually he's installed into a position of high influence, and it's through then Joseph in this position of high influence by whom God saves his people and many others. All of this worked out in such a way that Joseph eventually, okay, the guy that, was, that lived through all of this was able to say with confidence, he was able to tell his brothers who, by the way, when their dad died, were worried that Joseph was going to enact revenge upon them for the wrong that they had done him. He said this in Genesis 50, verse 20. So many of you have this verse even memorized. As for you, you, he's talking to the brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We like the story of Joseph. It inspires us. But none of us want to live the life of Joseph. We love the outcome, but we don't relish any of the divine detours Joseph experienced getting there. I mean, let's be honest, right? If you wanted to get somebody into Egypt to accomplish those results, I mean, couldn't God have sent Joseph there some other way? I mean, isn't that kind of sometimes our perspective in our own lives? Like, God, whatever you're doing, isn't there some other way? Friends, in all the twists and turns of life, Christians must trust God because he always knows what is happening and why it is happening. We have a God who is omniscient. He knows all things. All things. We have a God who is loving. And his love for you is unfailing. His love for us is unfailing. And we can be assured of that because of Christ. There's no more dramatic demonstration of God's covenant, fierce, steadfast love for us than in Christ. In all the twists and turns, when we don't know what's happening, trust God who does. Why? Sometimes God, sometimes God brings divine detours into our life. Number two, God does not waste divine detours. He does not waste divine detours. By the way, everything that we're reviewing together here this morning from God's Word and applying it into our lives, I know this is kind of like a, like a, what's like a mixture of expositional and topical? Topositional message um, is, I want us to understand that this requires faith. This requires faith. I'm not going to, I am not trying to talk your mind into this. All I'm trying to do is give you God's Word and the Spirit of God is going to have to convince you to live by faith in who God says he is and what he's promised for us in Christ. God does not waste divine detours. Look at verse 6 of Philippians 1. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is a destination that we are on. We are on a journey together as a people of faith. And this promise is true for us. 
that God's purposes and plans for us have not been defaulted, have not failed. God is continuing to work that out. Remember, this was written by a man in prison. I mean, he was not looking around at circumstances to convince him of this truth. It was the character and nature of God that was convincing him of this. The demonstration of God's love for him through Christ that was convincing him of this. God is never confounded about how to accomplish his good work in you. Never. God is not a cosmic... He's not just kind of the guy at the end of the parade cleaning things up as fast as he can while everybody else in the parade is making a mess of the parade route. That is not God. He is sovereign. He is working all things for good, not in a mess, kind of a cleanup way, but in a decreed will of his way that is being accomplished through things that we cannot comprehend. How could you, how could you explain? I'm just trying to help us put God back into his position as God as we wrestle with these conundrums in life. How would you explain the stock market to an amoeba? An amoeba is life. But how would you explain it? How would you explain the workings of an internal combustion engine to an amoeba? I mean, we just kind of like... Friends, the, the difference between us and an amoeba is small compared to the difference between God and us in the sense of of his wisdom and his power and his majesty and his rule and his reign. Now, we are his image bearers, so we are not the image bearers of amoebas, okay? The illustration breaks down quickly. I'm sorry. But I just want it for a force of effect for us to remember God's godness. And he does not waste divine detours. We can trust him. We can trust him. Paul wrote with the same kind of confidence in his last letter near the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 2, when he says, remember Jesus Christ, he's writing to the church, here his final words, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. We hear these words, but the word of God is not bound. Why? Because God of that word is not bound. God does not waste divine detours. This is why Paul can write in Romans 8, 28, a verse that is so flippantly thrown around with cliché, You know, in troubling times, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. And by the way, the all things later on in chapter 8 of Romans are dreadful things too. It includes some dreadful things. What all this means is, church family, we can be assured right now today that God is using everything in our lives and on our shared life together as a church for good. God is accomplishing an outcome that will bring him glory. Now, if you were to say, okay, define all of that for me, Sean. I don't know the hidden mysteries of God, but I know he loves us and he's redeemed us. Yes, it's easy enough to say it, but there are times in life when we must live by faith and believe that. And I believe now is one of those times in the life of this church family. I want us all to continue to trust God as we walk forward in faith together. And we can trust God. Sometimes he brings divine detours into our life. Sometimes when those divine detours in our life, we start wondering if it's worth it. But friends, God does not waste those detours ever. Third, divine detours advance the gospel. Divine detours advance the gospel. Look at verse 12. Now we're finally at the, really the core of the text we wanted to look at this morning. 
The Apostle Paul says, I want you to know, brothers. And by the way, the word brothers there, if you have a little number next to brothers in your translation, if you have an ESV, you notice that that is actually kind of a a Greek um, wording to describe brothers and sisters. It's not just to, this letter is not just written to men. It's brothers and sisters, this church family. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That word really, the language that Paul is using here in verse 12, has a particular force to it. Paul is conveying the idea that contrary to everything you would have expected or assumed to be the opposite, actually, really, God is doing something remarkable here. What could we reasonably expect to be a result of Paul's imprisonment? I've already alluded to this. It would be reasonable to expect that you would have a diminishing advance of the gospel. I mean, the guy who's on these missionary journeys and pushing the gospel into these fringe areas that hadn't been reached is now in prison. And you would think that the Christian church might be feeling like, man, they've just thrown him in prison. They're after us. If I am speaking and preaching the gospel, I'm going to be kind of considered to be one of those guys and they've thrown him into prison. I'm next. So maybe we need to pump the brakes on this evangelistic effort plan, church. Instead, Paul is convinced his circumstances have actually served the advancement of the gospel in remarkable ways. Okay? This is so God and Bible-like. Honestly, if we didn't have the word of God here, I would feel like a fool to even preach this. But look at it. Verse 13. What are the remarkable ways that God has advanced the gospel through Paul's circumstance of imprisonment? He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, which I believe is referring to those that are around him there in that sphere that he is in in Roman prison, the Felix and Festus, those that he's speaking with, those that are attending around him, all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It is for the Messiah, God's sent one. How would you try to evangelize the political elite of Rome? What would you be your strategy to evangelize their soldiers and guards? Leaflets? Flyers? Facebook posts? Instagram advertisements? Cold calls? I know I'm being a little facetious. Here's how God did it. He put Paul in prison. And it reminds me of what Paul said when he first set off for Jerusalem. I'm going to kind of go back to the narrative that we were going through in Acts. But in Acts chapter 20, right before he sets off to go to Jerusalem, he says, and now he's telling the Christians that are with him, it's an emotional send-off. There's been a prophecy that things are not going to go well for Paul when he gets there. And Paul says this, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is driving him there. Not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, there's like a sermon in that alone because I was just thinking through it yesterday, like of all the things that the Spirit of God could have told Paul, like if you're, if you're going to encourage somebody going downrange for, for the gospel work, are you going to, how would you encourage them? Maybe you'd say lots of people are going to come to faith in Christ and there's going to be revivals and... But what the Spirit of God testifies to Paul before he goes there is, I don't know what's going to happen except this, bad stuff. 
Imprisonment and afflictions await me. Imagine if a pastor stood in front of you and said, Church family, I have a vision for us. And the vision is imprisonment and afflictions. Who's with us? What would be our response? Now, obviously, it's not what Paul's doing here. But sometimes God's will for his people includes suffering and afflictions and we don't understand. Yet in all of it, we can be assured that God is at work advancing the gospel. This church family is living through a time when we might say we don't know what will happen in our future, but God does. Divine detours do not diminish the gospel advance. Divine detours actually advance the gospel of Jesus. Look at verse 14. Another result of what's happening here. Not only are the imperial guard, not only is the political elites, but verse 14 Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They're they're much more bold to speak the gospel without fear. This is really a head-scratcher. Somehow, Paul's imprisonment has become a source of courage for others to speak more boldly about the good news of Jesus without fear. Where it almost seems like while Paul was active in ministry efforts, there was some fear and, and misgiving, but now that he's been in prison... Somehow the effect has been, now they're mobilized and spreading the gospel. I don't understand this. You'd think that when Paul was put in prison, they would have reason to fear and be silent and and diminish their gospel efforts. The opposite happened. Think about it. Instead of one guy, Paul, spreading the gospel, granted an incredible incredible gift of God to Christ's church, what happens is God puts Paul in prison and the result is, other Christians become confident and much more bold to speak the gospel without fear. So, summarize it this way. One man is imprisoned, somehow unleashes an army of God's messengers of the good news of Jesus. I would have lost a bet on that. But this is so often how God works, isn't it? God loves to turn our expectations and perspectives upside down. That is really what he's done in the gospel. I mean, what binds us and unites us together as a church family, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, is an upside-down story. I mean, really, think about it. God takes an unknown girl named Mary, brings Jesus, the Messiah, into the world, not through a noble birth, but through a scandalous birth. The King of Kings was born in a stable surrounded by animal poop and urine, Instead of being surrounded by the luxury of a palace, Jesus was not raised in prestige or with an Ivy League education. He was raised in the ignoble city of Nazareth. It was so preposterous, it was so um, poor thought of in in its current day that it's recorded in John 1 that when somebody found out that this guy was from Nazareth, the response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? And ultimately, Jesus accomplished his great saving acts not through heroic acts of political or military victory, but he died on a Roman cross as a criminal. This is how weird we are as Christians. We believe that God brought about the salvation of the world through that that historical account and the great saving acts of God in Christ. So friends... This is what can give us confidence when things aren't making sense in our life and we're trying to understand what's going on. God remains trustworthy. We can trust God to advance the gospel through the divine detours that he's put into our life as individual Christians 
and as a, a collection of Christians in this faith community. When God surprises us, when our plans don't come to pass, we can trust that he will advance the gospel. He is advancing the gospel. He does this even when, from our perspective, we might not be able to even imagine how. Which, by the way, well, that's a different apology. I won't go there. It's not in the notes, so we won't, we won't veer. But friends, we do. God is a God who should cause our minds to think, well, that seems unimaginable. That happens all through the scriptures. God leans into those moments with like Abraham and Sarah. That's, that's ridiculous that I'm, we're going to have a child. That's unimaginable. And the word would be impossible. And God says, I am the God who does the impossible. So at this time in our church family, what's required of us is spiritual maturity and patient faith to live in accord with this. Like Christians through the ages have done all through church history. Like the Christians in Philippi were doing when Paul wrote this letter. And also, I want to remind us that God is ultimately in control of all things. And I'm speaking this truth to my heart as an elder here at Highlands Baptist Church. I mean, God is the one who's ultimately in control. And it's good for us to be reminded of that because James, the brother of Jesus, okay? I, I smile because I, I, I know what it's like to have siblings and the rivalry and the anger and the angst and the frustrations and the exasperations and my sister was not Messiah either. I only have one sibling. And my sister's sitting here. She was not, she's not the Messiah. Imagine being James who grew up with the Messiah. But James wrote it this way in James chapter 4. He says, Come now, you who say... Don't you love the little bit of the, the kind of a... Not combative, but hear my point. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profits. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Ultimately, God is the one who brings about his purposes and plans. You can read similar truths, pithy statements of truth in Proverbs about that, that the man devises the way, but the Lord is one that brings about his purposes. God has taken us through a detour, and yet I can say with biblical confidence, we can say that with biblical confidence, this has not happened to hurt us. The gospel will be advanced. He does not waste any of our detours. Do not lose heart, church family. Do not lose heart. We can be certain he is working all of this out for good. He is working all of this, all of this out to advance the gospel. And if our objective in life is the same as Paul's to advance the gospel, then we can respond in the same way to life's detours as he did with the same timeless truth. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, just paging forward a bit, Paul reviews some of the credentials that he has, the claim to fame. And yet he says in verse 8 that indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, Philippians 3.8 is a massive, has massive conflict with the American dream. 
It has massive conflict with our own modern-day Western expectations for the Christian life. It cuts cross-grain to that in extraordinary ways. The question is, do we want Christ like this? Are we so focused on the advancement of the gospel that we are willing to suffer the loss of things, even good things? Are we willing to suffer long with one another to demonstrate and showcase the glory of Christ by the fruit of the Spirit being expressed in us and through us toward one another and toward our counterparts in the world? I mean, where does long-suffering need to show up? Where does patience required? What about gentleness and kindness and self-control? So in those moments where we are tempted to do the opposite, to have the opposite reactions, are we willing to suffer the loss of things, to count them even as rubbish in order to gain Christ? Our modern-day expectations of convenience or having friends, we can, we can begin to approach God with the same way we approach our modern-day shopping centers, that the customer is always right. And God, we demand this of you. And God, we shouldn't be treated this way. And let me look at the warranty, the return policy on the back of your receipt, God. Friends, we've, we've been, if that were to be our disposition. I'm not saying that is us, but we have these, these forces working on us, pressing in on us. And we have removed God's godness. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Friends, when I'm, you say, well, here's what I'm trying to say. Don't, please don't make logical conclusions. I'm, I'm concerned now that maybe there's logical conclusions happening that I didn't intend. Here's what I'm trying to encourage us with, friends. God has called us together and we are walking forward together in faith through hardship, through confusion, through uncertainty, and it's worth it. Here's why. Because God is using all of this that we might gain more of Christ. This is happening, I'm confident, so that the gospel will advance. Do I have all the reasons and can I take you rationally through it? No. I'm not pretending to have that. But I do know that the God who has spoken to us from his word, who has revealed who he is to us, who has promised us, his steadfast love in Christ is with us always to the end of the age, and that means even now. So this morning, I want us to remember the lessons of faith that we see Paul demonstrating, that we see him calling the church in Philippi towards. Life sometimes includes divine detours, and we, we've walked through one of them together. We are walking through that. God does not waste divine detours, and divine detours advance the gospel. This is the God that we trust in. I'll ask the music team to come up and as they come up to help us respond in song, I want to give us just some things to reflect on about what we've looked at together from God's word. In what way might God be asking you to repent of ways you have been reluctant to trust God in and through this or ways that he is calling you to trust him even now? In what ways might God be asking you to obey him in faith this week? Here is one specific way that I would encourage us to obey God this week. Pray for faith, for faithfulness, 
pray for the advance of the gospel in us as a church family. In us, together as a church, that, that we would continue to grow up into the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ of our Ephesians, but also that that, that that vision of Christ would spread further in our communities and our cities. Pray for this. I don't know everything God is doing in us and through us in this detour, but I am confident God will not ultimately disappoint us. He knows what's happening, and I believe there is a bright future for us, so let's keep serving one another in love. Let's keep spreading the fame of, God, uh, fame of Jesus together as we trust in him together. Let's pray.